Welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the UC Irvine campus and we're streaming live at KUCI.org. You can find the podcast on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett and today my guest is Hallie Sutton. Hallie is a writer and editor who lives in Los Angeles. She's a frequent contributor to Crime Reads and a mentor for Pitch Wars, a program pairing published authors with up-and-coming writers. She holds a bachelor's degree in creative writing from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a master's degree in writing from Otis College of Art and Design. The Lady Upstairs is her debut novel. Hi, Hallie. Hi, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, Well, I love The Lady Upstairs, and I wonder if, well, I want to hear you talk about how the story came to you, Um, but I'm really interested also in the main character, Joe, who blackmails powerful men in L.A. Could you uh, give us sort of a little synopsis? Sure. So The Lady Upstairs is kind of a modern noir about, as you said, uh, the main character, Joe, who works for this blackmail agency targeting bad, powerful man, men in Los Angeles. And when the book opens, one of her cases is not going as smoothly as she'd like it to go. And that's a problem for her for two reasons, um, because it's a problem that the case isn't going well. But in addition, this was the case that was going to pay off her longstanding debt to her boss, The Lady Upstairs. And so if this doesn't go well, Joe might be in over her head in more than one way. Hmm. And the lady upstairs is not someone she knows, at least she doesn't think she knows her. And no. we don't we don't get the uh, the specifics until later. Um, talk about coming up with the lady upstairs, that that character. Sure. So I knew when I was starting to put the book together, which kind of happened um, as per your first question, it kind of was a confluence of things. I moved to Los Angeles for grad school to go to Otis College of Art and Design, and I moved here um not knowing a huge amount about Los Angeles, but what I knew about it was that I loved the noir literature and film that had come out of it. So I kind of leaned into that as a way to understand the city I was living in. And then I kind of ended up pairing it with Joe's voice, um, which I had in my head very early on. And the lady upstairs kind of became the central figure. I wanted Joe to not know exactly who she was working for and why. I wanted there to be kind of a question about some of the motives and who she was. And I liked the idea of, you know, I think we've seen other things like even Charlie's Angels where you have Charlie and this kind of shadowy figure removed, but I liked it as this kind of shifty woman. And Joe even questions in the book, is it actually a woman? Is it a man? Who am I actually working for? And she doesn't entirely know. And it kind of uh, gives a sense of murkiness to what's already a pretty murky business. I'm curious about Joe being the protagonist and, you know, it's always kind of interesting, the question, who, who, whose story is this? And I wondered if Joe was the protagonist because she's the one who um, changes the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that was, was part of it. You know, when I, when I first started writing the book, uh, Joe, Joe kind of just came fully formed, at least her voice did. Uh, and it was just this kind of brassy, take no nonsense person who particularly at a moment in my life when I think I was really drawn to that of feeling very differently myself and kind of liking the idea of uh, an avatar who was just this kind of like no nonsense woman. And, but, but then as I start started developing it into a book, I realized that that's not a very interesting main character. If she remains kind of this untouchable, sarcastic, cynical person, there has to be an actual heart there. And so I think when I kind of figured that out, that in order for her to actually be a main character in a full novel, she has to be kind of protecting something and evolving throughout the book that, that, that kind of, um, became a natural fit and kind of became that understanding of her character arc kind of became part of the reason that some of the plot unfolds the way that it does. How much did you know about her character arc? I mean, did you do this sort of full psychological, sociological, physical profile, or was it sort of a process of discovering her along the way? 
it was kind of a process of discovering her along the way. I felt lucky enough to have a strong sense of who she's presenting to the world so that when I would kind of sit down to write, I could say like, what would Joe think of even like a croissant? Like how does Joe eat a croissant? And so it, it became easy to dig into that. And then I kind of had to, as the book kept going, build that out into more of a full person. And like I said, there's always kind of the gap between what Joe is trying to be and who she actually is. Mm. The novel reminded me in certain ways of um, Megan Abbott's Queen Pin. Oh my gosh. One of my favorites. <laughs> I know. I love that novel too. But as I started reading it, I'm like, wait a minute, this is, this is interesting. And I don't know that, it, I mean, you know, Vicki Hendricks comes to mind and there are some other writers that come to mind, but especially Queenpin. And so I wondered as well, are there noir writers or novels that inspired this book? Because we all kind of, I think, um, are, are inspired by what's come before. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, can I just say thank you for the biggest compliment in the world to say it reminded you of Megan Abbott's Queenpin and Vicki Hendricks. Those are two authors that I just like worship. So that is like such a huge compliment. Thank you. <laughs> um, those were definitely both touchstones for me. I uh, had read, I think, Dare Me years ago. And then I, as, as I started to kind of like get more into um, Megan Abbott's work, I, you know, she has those great kind of early throwbacks of which Queen Pin is one. So that was definitely um, an influence for me, her kind of earlier books. Um, Vicki Hendricks is just like such a great writer. I mean, Miami Purity is one of my favorite books and I talk about it to people all the time. I just think it's like never read enough. Like even if everyone in the country had read it, it still wouldn't be enough. Uh, and she, she just packs like so much noir punch. Um, so definitely kind of looking at, uh, both of them as people who influenced the book. I, you know, I'm a huge Elmore Leonard fan. And so he was a big influence, particularly he has some, you know, great female characters, Karen from out of sight. And then actually he has a whole, he has a whole slew of Karens. There's also Karen and uh, Gold Coast is probably my favorite of his novels. Um, and then I think it's hard to be in LA and writing and not have the shadow of Chandler and Kane sitting on your shoulders. And so those were, you know, definitely people that I read when I felt like I needed a noir boost. And then also, you know, there's such a great uh, noir filmography that a lot of um, a lot of kind of myself steeping myself in noir for this book came about through watching Body Heat kind of compulsively um, and uh, Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, uh, Chinatown, just kind of trying to get a feel of all all the noir tropes that I could build into build into this book. Mm, yeah, I love all those movies. I love them. Um, and the LA, you mentioned LA and, and I love how there are so many LA landmarks in your book and the setting works so well. Um, talk about writing setting. I always love to talk about setting because especially with noir, it, it seems that setting is a major part of noir. Yeah. Uh, you know, Part of it for me, part of the fun of this book was that I was kind of discovering Los Angeles at the same time I was writing it. So it was a lot of fun to me to drive out to different neighborhoods and just kind of walk around and get a sense of, uh, of, of the city. And, and as you talk about it in with noir and setting being such a big part of noir, I think, first of all, there is something that we're never going to stop being fascinated about by bad things that happen in the sunshine. So I think that that is something for Los Angeles that's like, that's never going to go away. Um, and then I also think, you know, noir has such a great history of really unusual descriptions, um, starting with Raymond Chandler. I mean, maybe not starting with Raymond Chandler, but Raymond Chandler being like one of the biggest examples of that, of just this kind of unique way of describing things that I think lends itself really well to making setting feel like a huge part of the book, because if you can just kind of shift it a little bit, and it's not just that, you know, the sky is blue, but the sky is blue, like a pair of earrings. Like there's just ways that you can, that wasn't a very good one, but there's just ways that you can kind of, uh, make things feel very evocative because the, the tradition of noir has this, um, rich history of, you know, very descriptive, surprising kind of earthy language to it that I think, I think lends well to creating unique settings. Hmm. Well, speaking of detail and description, 
you have some killer verbs in, in this, in this you. novel, you know, Lou willowed her body into the back seat and the phone meringue to life. I mean, I love some of the verb usage in this book. And is that, is that something that comes easy to you? You know, I don't know that it's something that comes easy to you, but thank you. That's, I appreciate that compliment as well. Um, but it's something that I noticed. I remember reading somewhere and I, I can't remember where, but there was somebody, um, some piece of writing advice that said basically like the stronger, sharper, more specific you can make your verbs, the less you have to do with adjectives. Uh, and if, and I really kind of took that to heart and, you know, somebody who does it really well, um, who is a writer that I had a major infatuation with for many years and still do is Ray Bradbury has these kind of uh, insanely evocative verbs that he uses. I remember one short story. He said somebody uh, storked his elbows and turkeyed his legs, or I might've <laughs> flipped that, but it just the way that the way that he uses that to describe the way a person stands. And I just remember going, I'm just going to collect as many of those as I can and find ways to slot them in there. So thank you for noticing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I'm always noticing verbs because it's, they can be, you know, really nail um, a detail or, mm -hmm. a visual, you know, if you get the right one. And yes, so I, I kept finding them throughout um, your book. And I'm like, oh, we got to talk about that. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear you read um, from the lady upstairs. Sure. Um, I will read a short passage from the very first chapter, the very beginning of the book. Okay. I picked the hotel for the sting because the bar had one hell of a happy hour. If you liked your drinks cheap and strong, the glasses washed maybe once in the last week. It was down the street from the studios, the right type of place to entice a movie man to meet an obliging blonde for a quick afternoon pick-me-up. And not the least of my calculations, the St. Leo let me have my choice of adjoining rooms whenever I checked in and didn't mind early arrangements or a quick redecoration for the right price. By my second drink, the apricot-tinted windows were purpling with twilight, happening so early these days, turning the light in the bar a good soft color for sloppy bad decisions. I was waiting on my third when I saw Ellen escorting the mark through the lobby to the elevator. She stayed cool, didn't toss me so much as a backward glance. It was harder to do than it looked. But Ellen kept her eyes firmly on the mark's face, fingers curled around the patched elbow of his tweed blazer, a gift from one of his grandkids, no doubt, or one of the grown children benefiting from his production company's rampant nepotism. When I researched him for Lou and our shadowy employer, the lady upstairs, it had been one of the things that sold me. He kept his grabby sons on set, even after numerous complaints had been filed. I'd read that and thought, this one's perfect. He looked at me, a swoop of terror in my stomach, but it was no more than the passing glance of a man surveying the room. I met his eyes and looked away without smiling, letting my gaze go through him. And once they got upstairs, showtime. Hmm. Thank you. That was Hallie Sutton reading from The Lady Upstairs, published by Putnam. Um, I'm often asked to define noir. How do you define it? Uh, um, I am often asked that too. You know, it's, I think it's, there's many great, uh, you know, I always go back to that description about the, you kind of, you know it when you see it. It's, there's things about an attitude and a lighting and the, the tropes that it plays with. But I also think that it's about, um, I think it's Laura Lippman's description where it's dreamers become schemers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, you know, I think it's about the perils of getting what you want and finding out who you are to some extent, how far you're willing to go to get what you want, which is usually tinged with destruction. And I think it's also often about, um, you know, the the hopelessness of the individual in face of institutional problems. I think, you know, Marlowe is the down these mean streets, a man must go, you know, type who can see the world as flawed as it is and process it and still not be able to fully change it. You know, I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of darkness and light kind of, you know, that chiaroscuro that comes through in the, the films. But I think that that's true in literature too. It's about um, hopelessness, but also you can't give up on your dreams at the same time. You can't, you, that you, and I, I don't mean that in the hokey way. I mean that in the destructive way. If you can't, you have the dream of the woman or the score or the one last time, and then we're out and you, it, it starts to run you, you don't run it.
Were you into noir in Santa Cruz when you were at Santa Cruz or or at Otis? I mean, how did you get into noir? <laughs> um, I've always been a big fan of noir films and um, noir literature. I wouldn't say that I was a huge fan. I, I think I didn't even understand that that was necessarily what I was drawn to for a long time. I remember when I was at Santa Cruz, what I tended to be writing more were... Um, or I thought I was kind of going to go in the direction of maybe more like magical realism. You know, I was a huge fan of Kelly Link and then later Carmen Maria Machado and Alice Sola Kim, all these writers who were doing these kind of fantastical things. And But that didn't ever really fit my aesthetic of writing. And it wasn't until I would say my mid-20s that it occurred to me that like I was also a person who like when I couldn't sleep would look at murders and would read the like Texas Monthly long form articles about murders. And then <laughs> I think once I that kind of clicked, I was like, no, you're a crime writer. And then it kind of like tugged at my love of noir that had been long seated and married the two. Were your instructors supportive of noir at uh, Otis? Yes, absolutely. Actually, I uh, was lucky enough to study with um, some amazing professors, but in particular, Paul Vangelisti, who had uh, started the Otis graduate writing program um, years ago. And he is kind of this noir poet and he does a lot of work in translation, but he does a lot of work of his own uh, noir poetry, which was fascinating and amazing. I'm actually staring at one of his poems now above my desk. uh, And he he was a huge influence on the book and kind of was able to help guide me because I didn't want to be doing second rate Chandler knockoff. Do you know what I mean? Like there's there's a lot of great noir work out there and then it's really easy to kind of like lean too far into the tropes. And so he was able to kind of help me hopefully find a good balance of the two. Hmm. Well, I'm curious in terms of when you were writing this, there was all this stuff going on with Weinstein and uh-huh. in LA and, and, um, and I guess I heard an interview with you. I don't know where, where I read it, where I listened, but you, you had written this before that started happening. Yes, yeah. I did. I started writing the book uh, in 2015, 2016, which was like kind of just before um, the real scoop on Harvey Weinstein broke. So when I was first writing the book, you know, I always knew that there was this lecherous producer was kind of the case that kicks off the novel. Um, but I wasn't necessarily thinking specifically of Harvey Weinstein because I personally wasn't as aware of Harvey Weinstein as we all are now. Um, but I think I think the problem with with any of this kind of societal issue with this is that even without knowing the specifics about Harvey Weinstein, we knew about that there were these casting couch kings. That has been a rumor that's been around for forever. And um, so I was playing off of that. But the problem is, of course, that's real. So when when the news about Harvey Weinstein broke, I I didn't really want to take that out of there because I'm also pretty sure that maybe he's not the only creep in Hollywood as we've seen uh, coming out. But I but I also didn't want it to be necessarily too specifically pegged to exactly him because I thought that that dated the book in a way um, that I didn't necessarily want it to be. But uh, yes, I mean there are there are bad men abusing the casting couch since I think we've had couches so. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting, but but the book also came out during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So how was that? How has that been launching a book during this time? You know, um, we were lucky enough to be able to push back the publication. It was originally supposed to come out in July. And in March, after it kind of started to become apparent that this pandemic was not going to be a two-week thing, um, as we had all hoped, I think at one point, uh, we ended up pushing it back to November. So it felt a little better by the time it came out in November. You know, we had a better handle on what was happening and um, and the publishing companies, I think everyone had kind of adjusted to Zoom events. So that wasn't as strange. So it was it was very strange in some ways to have my debut novel come out in the middle of a pandemic because it's weird to be excited about something when it's also a very stressful, depressing, anxiety-ridden time for the world. Um, and then other parts of it, you know, I ended up getting to do events with bookstores and with authors that I think I would not have been able to connect with in some ways because um, we didn't have to travel there. We could just do it through Zoom. So it was just... Uh, there were some 
parts of it that ended up being better than I was hoping and some parts that just ended up being different than I was hoping. But, it, you know, it's hard to complain about uh, your lifelong dream coming true no matter when it happens. Mm. Do you think the pandemic will be featured in any future work? Uh, of mine? Um, you know, I think maybe one day uh, when I feel like I have a little more distance from it and um maybe have something more interesting to say. I don't think I have anything interesting to say about it just yet. I think I haven't kind of processed it in any way that would be that in interesting, but it is an interesting question, right? Because then what do you do? Do you, does everybody, do you set your books in a world where the pandemic didn't happen? Does everybody write books set in 2018? Like it's just, it's kind of a, an interesting question for any artist. And I'm curious to see how people are going to handle it. I, uh, I have faith that there's going to be a lot of really interesting, beautiful books that come out that have, um, important things to say about it, but I don't think I'm there yet. Yeah. Do you remember the Decameron project that came out? Mm -hmm. um, I think that was July, the New York Times supplement magazine um, yes. came out with all those stories or excerpts of stories. And mm -hmm. it was all pretty new. And, uh, you know, I love some of those stories. I don't know how I would feel now about picking up a book of stories or a novel focused on the pandemic, but you're mm -hmm. right. Maybe when some time goes by, sort of you know right yeah well we can we can revisit it you know it's interesting too I had friends who at the beginning of it found a lot of comfort in watching movies about pandemics or kind of global disasters and I had very much the opposite reaction where I was like uh, no thank you I don't we're living in it I don't want to see this um but I think that there yeah I think that there will be some really important interesting things that come out of it I think when this just began, maybe the pandemic was just starting. I remember watching Contagion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. Too real. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course it got worse and it wasn't yes. over in two weeks or two months. No. And it's just, it's been an interesting, interesting time. Yeah. Um, back to the lady upstairs, the pacing works really well with this book. And so I wondered if, if you have, a method. Do you um, have post-its all over your walls? Do you have an Excel spreadsheet where you keep track of what's going on in every chapter? How do you, how do you keep track of it all? Yeah, great question. Um, so I, a couple of different methods, actually, when I first drafted this book, um, I was working on and I was it's still in grad school. And I actually ended up writing the first draft while I was in grad school. And I just remember one day going in to see one of my professors who was the head of the department, Peter Gadol. Um, and I was just like, Peter, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to land the plane. I have all these plot threads, and I don't know where they're going. And so we I brought in a big poster board, and we sat down and and we color coded different post-it notes with different plot threads. And he gave me really interesting advice, which was solve your plot threads in reverse order of importance. So the most important one has to be solved last. And then the least important one has to be solved first. And so that really helped me kind of figure out how to wind down each different segment of the book, each different um, subplot that I had created. Uh, and it was really helpful to be able to do it with color-coded notes, because then you could see when you were leaning too heavily on one plot thread versus the other one, you wanted to try to find, you know, some sort of balance to it. So I found that really helpful. And I think that that is a um, thing that I will continue to, to use. Another thing that helped me with the pacing of this book and kind of the plotting of it was um, when I got into Pitch Wars myself in 2018, uh, Lane Fargo was my mentor. She's a great feminist thriller writer. She just had her second book come out, um, They Never Learn, in October last year. Uh, and she basically introduced me to Save the Cat Writes a Novel. Mm -hmm. And so we took the plot framework for Save the Cat Writes a Novel, which people typically do while they're plotting the novel before they've started writing it. And we put kind of that plot framework over the plot that I had so that we could figure out where were spots that I, I wasn't hitting the beats that I needed to be hitting. And I think any of those, um, you know, novel, novel plotting books can be sometimes a little formulaic or people are resistant to them. And I, I understand that, but it, it ended up being really uh, helpful for me to be able to figure out, you know, where was I spending too much time? My midpoint was in the wrong place. How do I build tension satisfyingly? How do I resolve it satisfyingly? Um, and so it is something that I've definitely leaned on as I'm working on my second book too. 
Hmm. Yeah, Save the Cat. You know, I have that book. Somehow it, it found its way here. I think the publisher sent it. I don't know. Oh, but nice. that's something I should uh, take a look at. I have trouble with plot. I really mm -hmm. I get so hung up on plot. And, you know, it I, seems I, it seems deeply unfair that we have to, like, create a mystery and then solve it. That seems like too much work for one person. It does. And it is. It is. Um, what about backstory? Because the backstory that you have here comes in pretty much where the reader wants it. And oh, thank you. I wondered if you had a method for that, or is it more um, an intuitive thing? On your it's, it's definitely more intuitive for me. Um, you know, it, it's more, where do I feel like the reader needs a breath or more information? How can you do it in a way that you don't uh, lose tension, but adds to the story? Um, and that was a lot of kind of trial and error and moving things around. Um, there's the scene in the book that's the uh, Joe and Lou, who's her best friend and her coworker at the lady upstairs um, blackmail agency, where they first meet for the first time and they end up getting a breakfast together at a diner that serves pie. Um, that was the very first scene I ever wrote for the book ever. And one of the only ones that made it through every iteration of drafting, but it just kept getting changed as to where it was. <laughs> where did it make the most sense to put this kind of information about how they had come together and what that meant for Joe. Um, and a lot of that comes through just, I think the support of uh, trial and error for me, kind of an intuitive feel and then feedback from you know, my different writing partners is, is this slowing things down too much? Is this where you want this? Does this add enough to it? Because, um, I don't ever want it to feel extraneous. And, and I appreciate your comment about plot pacing. That was something that I worked really hard on. I think an earlier draft of the novel, the pacing was a lot slower. And so it was trying to figure out how to get all of that in there without sacrificing any of the pacing. How many drafts did you go through? <laughs> um, good question. Uh, I would say I did about three, three, four drafts, maybe before I got into pitch wars. And then we basically overhauled the book in three and a half months. And so that was almost a full new draft. Um, you know, using a lot of stuff I'd written before in the same characters, but it really changed a lot. And then, uh, I did probably two rounds of edits with my agent once I signed with her. And then I think two or three rounds of edits with my, um, editor at Putnam. Uh, and so there were those, are, and those are kind of the ones that I would consider like major drafts of the novel. There were certain scenes that stayed like that pie di diner scene changed a little bit, but that it mostly stayed the same. Um, there were, there was one chapter in the book in particular that I just rewrote, 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 rewrote what it took me forever to figure out how to get it right. And then once I did, it felt like, oh yes, this is exactly what I wanted it to be. But that one took maybe like 18, 19 revisions. It really, that one really killed me. <laughs> wow. So over how many years then? I mean, this sounds like a long time. <laughs> yes. It was about three and a half years. Mm. Well, that's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> Not, not too bad. <laughs> oh, man, because revision is just a bear. I mean, how many of us start projects and at some point abandon them because it just seems to be too much, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and I wish revision was something that we all talked about more about methods for it, because I think that that is so important to writing. And like, it's the thing that gives me comfort when I'm sitting down to write a first draft that isn't very good is that it doesn't have to be good yet, but it's just eventually you do have to figure out how to make it good. And I think that that's the thing we could all stand to talk about for, for a long time. Mm. Well, yeah, the first draft in terms of not worrying about whether it's good or not, do you barrel through? Did you barrel through this and just figure if I have something on the page, I'll have something to work with? Or what was your process with that? Um, you know, I think when I was first in grad school, there was kind of um, a luxury of being able to go to, to want to be more inspired, but at the same time, attention of, I have to turn in 30 pages every two or three weeks. So you had to be producing stuff, but it, it was, I was really kind of focusing on making each chapter, this kind of like delicate, beautiful version of itself. And then later for pitch wars, um, it really was, I just had to get something on the page. Like you're, you're doing so much work in such a short 
amount of time that you just have to get something on the page and fix it later. So there was a lot of Microsoft Word notes to myself of like, come back to this, make better later, you know, like figure this out later. And, uh, and that's something that I'm kind of trying to pursue a little bit more um, as I'm drafting my second book is just reminding myself that something on the page is better than nothing. And that, you know, sometimes you can have the luxury of saying like, this is coming to me exactly how I want it to. And it's flowing perfectly. But I think a lot of the days it's just sitting at the computer and churning out stuff that you're don't think are these perfect polished gems, but are just getting it down on the page. So do you have, um, I don't know, a schedule? Do you write a certain amount of time every day or, or does it depend on what else is going on in your life? And how does that work? It kind of depends on what else is going on in my life. I wish, uh, I feel like eventually I'll do so many interviews where people ask this that I'll be shamed into coming up with a schedule just so that I can be like, yes, I have an exact schedule I write to and here's what it is. Um, but the truth is particularly in the last year with the pandemic, um, my schedule with it has been kind of all over the place. It's been, you know, uh, I think about the book um, that I'm working on now every day, uh, but some days that means jotting down notes and some days that means actually, you know, writing pages and some days that means just turning over ideas in my head or listing things that I'm like, that's interesting. I might want that to influence this book. Um, so it, it hasn't been as regulated as I would like it to be or as, as, as probably would be effective. Yeah. Do you have, like a certain number of words you have to get done a week or do you work like that at all? You know, I've tried that in the past and at times that's worked for me. Um, what I've been doing lately with a friend is we've been doing these writer sprints where uh, she's in Chicago and I'm here. So we check in with each other at uh, eight, my time in California, 10, her time. And we just write for 45 minutes, whatever, anything, no, no word count we're going for, but we have to be writing that time whole time. Um, and then we just let each other know when we finished and we tell each other how many words we got for that day. And it's been really freeing in that, um, it just kind of, it, it's like when you tell yourself you have to go exercise, it doesn't matter how long you just have to do it. And so like, I feel like there's a lot of resistance in the beginning of that for me, the first five or 10 minutes, and then you kind of get in a groove and then the time passes and it, it's kind of lovely. So that's been effective for me lately in, um, actually just churning out words. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned pitch wars. Tell us a bit about pitch wars. Sure. So pitch wars is a yearly, um, mentor mentee program where uh, published authors or people who work in publishing in different capacities apply to be a mentor and then they volunteer their time um, to work with one person who has a fairly polished manuscript but is kind of trying to get it over the finish line you know figure out what they need to do to take it to the next level and you work with that person basically like you open your you tell you say here's what I'm here's what I'm open to receiving or here are the things I would want to work on and people apply to you and I think um the last two years I've been mentors with Lane Fargo who was my mentor back in 2018 and um we, you know, have received, I think, somewhere between 150, 165 applications each year. And so you read through those kind of like a slush pile, you pick the one that you feel like you have the most vision for, and you work with that person to help them get their manuscript to the next level. And then at the end of those, it's usually about three months, three and a half months, there's an agent showcase where agents sign up and they have like an exclusive first look at a pitch and your first page and they can request more pages. So it kind of helps you fast track a little bit the querying process. And during that time too, as a mentor, you help your mentee come up with a really strong query and you kind of just get them ready for the querying process, the next part of publishing. And um, I think the best thing that's come out of it for me has just been building this community with other crime writers that has been really fun. And it's really rewarding to get to spend that time working on somebody's manuscript. And I know when I was a mentee, it I don't think my book would be published today if I hadn't gotten through pitch wars. So it really was a huge help to me. And I'm very interested in continuing to give back in that way. Hmm. Is it all genres of fiction or crime writing only? It's all genres of fiction. Yeah. So I think there's usually around um, 100 and 105, 105, 110 mentors um, or teams of mentors uh, who, who volunteer their time. And so it can just be, um, 
everybody says kind of what they're open to. And I'm sure the people who are in charge of, of pitch wars kind of try to keep it balanced so that it's not, you know, all crime writers or all science fiction fantasy, but it's open to a variety of different genres. Hmm. And how would people find pitch wars? Um, you can find there's a pitchwars.org, I believe, is the website. Um, and they're also very active on Twitter. Um, and so and they also run a couple of different Twitter pitching contests that I know agents check out, like uh, diversity pitching and um, pit mad. Uh, and so if you if you look up for them on Twitter, you can find the different the different things they run to help kind of boost authors who are looking to break through. Mm, excellent. Thank you. Um, back to the book. So you mentioned Lou earlier, and I found Lou to be a really strong character. And of course, when I'm reading um, fiction, I'm, I, I can't help it, but I wonder if the writer is um, creating composite characters at all, or basing characters on people um, he or she knows. And I wondered that about Lou, if, if Lou is anybody in particular or or bits of different people great question you know uh lou was one of my favorite characters to write and in a weird way there are parts of lou that feel more like me than joe does um and so she wasn't exactly based on necessarily anyone specific but i was kind of trying to show two different sides i mean joe the the lady upstairs business is basically making the femme fatale trope in noir actual and that they have a place where they pay taxes every year that this is this is their job is to be these femme fatales so I kind of wanted to show different types of femme fatales we have Joe who's kind of the cool cucumber you know brassy broad uh, archetype and then Lou who is kind of more friendly and beguiling and um warm and open-hearted at least on the surface and the way that those two would play off each other and be drawn to each other was very interesting to me but I wouldn't say that she was necessarily based on um anything too specific anyone too specific mm, interesting yeah I, I loved her I thought oh, she thank was you great. um names names are so important in fiction and so I am always examining names and and wondering what they mean and so Lou and Joe have androgynous names, but mm -hmm. others do not. I don't think anyone else does. There's the Jackal, mm -hmm. um, Anna, um, Ellen. I'm curious about names. How do you name your characters and how important are names for you? Names are very important for me. And it's not always that I'm specifically looking for you know, what does this name mean is a direct correlation, but it just is that I think without the right name, the character doesn't necessarily appear to me the way that I want them to. Um, so you're right, Joe and Lou are both these kind of androgynous names, which I wanted a little bit to have that kind of throwbacky noir feel that, you know, um, that kind of like brassy dame Joe, Lou, that it could be, it could be either that they're women operating also in this kind of like man's business as they see it. Um, and then with some of the other names, it was just kind of, uh, kind of moving it around until I felt like it was right. Robert Jackal is an example where it was like, that was a name that I attached to very early and it's almost a little cartoonish. So at times I wondered about changing it, but it, it just became so attached to who the character was that it, I, I well, it was a darling I couldn't sacrifice <laughs> um, for me, but it, yeah, I'm, I definitely naming characters has a lot to do with how I see them and how I get a feel for them. And, uh, and it's, it's hard once you kind of bond with the name of a character to, to give it up. Jackal and Joe's relationship is interesting in that it's so antagonistic and yet they need each other in some way. Um, some very, they're very important to each other. Um, talk about them and, and creating that relationship. Yeah. So I, I felt like I knew from the beginning that uh, Jackal and Joe were going to be involved. And I, I knew that I wanted it to be this kind of on the surface convenient thing for both of them that it was they were they were at least saying to themselves, 
Um, this isn't something that I'm too emotionally involved in, invested in, particularly Joe. But as I got more into the book and kind of more into the characters, uh, it, it occurred to me how much of that would also be, you know, Joe's Joe feeling like she's too tough to ever really love anyone. And that, um, that that's, that's the agreement that she and Lou have kind of made that, that it's, you know, you don't love anyone more than yourself. You stay true to yourself. And so she, she thinks that that's the relationship she has with Jackal. But I think, um, for me, it became interesting as the book went on and as I revised it more and more to make Jackal in some ways, the character who sees Joe the most clearly. And that I think that, um, now I'm kind of getting into a little bit of a di digression about one of my favorite topics lately, but I think that <laughs> when you, when you write a first person, um, narrative, the, the first person is always, I think, inherently an unreliable narrator because they can only see themselves the way that they see themselves. And so throughout the book, there are different points where I wanted Jackal to be the person who's reflecting something a little bit different back to the audience, um, about back to the reader about Joe, that he sees her differently. You know, she's she's drinking a lot, which is the noir trope and it's kind of fun, but you probably know it's not great. But then I, there's a moment later in the book where he says, basically you're drinking yourself to death. I wanted there to be these moments where he kind of confronts her with things that the reader may have picked up on themselves, but Joe herself isn't seeing. And so he became kind of my favorite character for that, uh, kind of different mirroring of Joe. And I think that has a lot to say about the honesty and depth of their relationship, even if they're not willing to admit that to themselves. Have you considered multiple viewpoints? Um, you know, I, not for this book, not really. Uh, it, I, I like being the kind of, uh, inherent difficulty and challenge of having to stick in one character's head, because then you can really, you can only see what Joe sees, which can be tricky when there are things as in this book that happen off stage that are important for the, for the reader to know about, to find ways that that doesn't just become an exposition dump where you say, and this happened. Um, but I, I really like the challenge of that, of being forced to only look through one person and try to still build a full world around them. Are you doing that for your next one? I am. Yes. Yeah. I am. I should say with the caveat of that, the next one will have kind of um, short chapters interspersed of other, other documents, um, particularly of a book that the character is reading, but it is just one, one person who gets a, who gets a, a, a point of view on the page. Hmm. Interesting. Um, a little bit about the business of writing. So did you say you got your agent through Pitch Wars or did you go the query route? I did both actually. Um, I did before I got into Pitch Wars, I was doing the querying route and having um, some success in that people were asking for foals, but no one was really biting too much. And then I ended up getting this really beautiful uh, rejection letter, essentially from the woman who is now my agent, where she took time. And it was, I would say like six to eight paragraphs where she laid out what she liked about the book as it was, what she thought wasn't working, ways she thought I could revise it. And basically gave me the opportunity to say, you know, if any of this feedback resonates with you, feel free to send it my way again. And that was so nice. It was this like lifeline in in the darkness to be like, somebody actually read it and had feedback, you know, because so much, so often what you get is just this, like, it's not right for me, which is totally valid. Agents are very busy people and are reading, you know, a million manuscripts a day, but it doesn't really point you in any direction of what, what is missing from your book. Um, and so that was actually her feedback was the thing that pointed me towards pitch wars because it became very clear to me that I had a lot of revision work on the book to do that. I didn't totally know how to do. And so that's how I ended up finding Pitch Wars. And she ended up signing up for the agent showcase at the end of Pitch Wars and requesting my manuscript and being the first person I heard from who had an offer of rep. And she, I, you know, it had meant so much to me to get all that feedback from her. And she is very well respected and just seemed like a great match. So I ended up doing kind of both the traditional querying, but then ultimately I think it was Pitch Wars that ended up um, bringing us together. Did you use comp titles? Are comp titles important? I did use comp titles, yes. And actually, Queenpin by Megan Abbott was one of my comp titles. And I think the other one was uh, Sunburn by Laura Lippman. Mm -hmm. um, and so when, when I'm working with people in uh, Pitch Wars and we're trying to come up with comp titles, I think it's, I think for me, it's just an opportunity to really kind of, if you can find something 
unusual that speaks to your book that might grab an agent's attention. It's just one more way of setting yourself kind of apart in the slush pile because there are so many queries out there. Do you think if you can't come up with comp titles that there's a problem with the book? I don't know that I think there's a problem with the book if you can't come up with comp titles, but it would, it would be, it, I would have questions about that, about, um, you know, how well do you know this genre? Because there's always something that can speak to it. I don't think it has to be like a direct match, but you could, but you could still find something that's like, you know, the strong female characters like X or the setting similar to X, you know, something that like speaks to it. So, um, I don't think that that's a problem. I've also worked in uh, academic and educational publishing on the other side. And I remember sometimes we would get queries that would say that wouldn't have comp titles, but instead of a comp title, they would say something like, uh, there is no comp for this because there's never been another book written like this in the <laughs> entire world. And I, that would be kind of an immediate red flag of like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> right. So I don't think uh, the lack of comp titles is necessarily a problem, but I, but I think if you dig deep enough, you can always, almost always find something that your work is in relation to. Mm. And how recent, because Queen Pin, I don't know, it's, it's, yeah, it's not so recent. Yeah, but it, but it does. I mean, it does resonate. You know, I, uh, I think if I had just been comping it to Queen Pin, that might've been an issue because it was older, but I felt because I was also comping it to Sunburn, which I think at that point had just come out less than a year before. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it felt like that was an okay thing to do. Cause I could pr- kind of bridge the gap that Queen Pin did speak so much to kind of the content of it. And also that I think the people, part of, part of why I use that for me as a comp when I was, um, querying agents was that it was like, if you love Queen Pin, like you love that book. And then I knew that if you were really into that as a comp, then my book would be a good book for you, that you have a better shot of really being interested in my book. Um, And so, but then also putting it with something that had been kind of more commercially viable more recently was kind of my way of bridging, bridging that gap. Yeah. Interesting. And before the show, maybe last week, I can't remember when, recently, we talked about positioning books. And um, I asked you if if this was positioned as noir. And I think you said as noir slash thriller. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that that, I think that that was, um, part of the mythical business of publishing, right? Which is that they're trying to cast as wide a net as possible. And I think that there were some fears that saying it was just a noir would limit it to people who only read noir. But what is what I find so fascinating about noir, and I think part of the reason it's endured so much is that it has so many different kind of um, permutations. And there are so many things that we say are like noir inflected, noir tinged, like it's still it's still very alive and well, even if that's not the word that we're using for it. So it was very important for me that I wanted this to be labeled kind of specifically noir, because it is very noir. And so if, if that's not something that's your jam, this may not be your book. Um, but I think also in terms of uh, marketing reach, my publishing team wanted it to make sure it was also tagged as a thriller. And it, it's interesting. I think that some of the reception that I've gotten from the book, which I'm very grateful for, but I think that there are parts of it that are more noir than thriller. And if you're open at just looking for kind of a, a thriller like um gone girl or girl on the train, it doesn't necessarily hit all of those same beats. Mm. But, uh, you know, one thing though, is that the ending is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's exactly noir, you know, Mm -hmm. there is a bit of hope um, there at the end. And I was thinking of something I've heard Donald Moss, the literary agent and author of books on writing and other things say, and, and that is that, um, that more than tropes and plot, readers want emotion and readers mm-hmm. want hope. And so your novel, um, The Lady Upstairs, does end with a bit of hope. And I was wondering if you, if you thought it did. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. You know, what's funny is that as you were saying that, I was going, ah, oh, to me, it's a really dark ending. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, yes, I think that I... Um, 
I think that you can read it both ways. I think that you can read it that there is some hope there in some of it. And yet to me, um, without necessarily giving away the ending, I think that there's, to me, it has always felt like a very dark ending that there are, uh, that, that there are things that Joe still hasn't gotten out of her own self-delusion about that if, if, if I was extrapolating where this goes next, it's not necessarily a, a pretty place. Mm. Yeah. Well, it, it is interesting with noir because I think for a lot of people, they imagine, you know, the movies, um, mm-hmm. and just, you know, very dark, you know, uh, trench coats and, and slim suits. And, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It kind of bothers me that, that that is the image people have. But at the same time, I'm thinking of Megan Abbott, who started with noir and mm-hmm. has gone to thriller and, and wondering if that's part of it, you know, that, that is noir um, kind of has uh, connotations that readers don't necessarily like. Yeah, I love it. So, you know, I'm puzzled, but um, I don't know. I'm with you. I love it, too. I do think that there. uh, Yes, I think that there are connotations there that readers don't like. And I think that noir, I mean, to me, going back to the idea of the noir definition, like one of the recurring themes is almost always that the protagonist discovers this darkness in themselves that maybe they hadn't fully appreciated was there. And I I think people don't always like confronting that. And I often where that ends with, with the books is um, a pretty dark place and whether or not that's death or prison or not, but it just is, it's never usually like, and then things were fine. Um, And I, I do think that there I don't know. I think that the appetite for um, endings, particularly depending on what kind of genre you're in, like I think with thrillers, there's there's the desire. And I think that this is true oftentimes of crime writing. And it's something that I've thought about and kind of struggled with. Like there's the desire to return to normal. This bad thing has happened and now it's over and we can go back to it. And I think that one of the things that I really love about noir is kind of the the way that it doesn't pretend that that's how the world works, that when something really bad happens in real life, it doesn't usually just get smoothed over. And, you know, in a year, it's all fine. People go on and they still live their lives, but it's it's not necessarily this return to completion. And I think we like that in books or in movies because it's kind of, we don't necessarily get that in real life. But I, for me, there's something compelling about staring into the darkness and saying like, it is darkness. It doesn't go away. It doesn't get fixed. It doesn't just go back to, you know, and now the murderer's locked up and it's over. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Is the second book noir? Uh, yes. I would say it's maybe not um, playing as deeply with the noir tropes. Like I, you know, part of, part of my literal thinking with the lady upstairs when I first started writing it was she's a femme fatale. You know, I was thinking very much in terms of noir tropes, but the, the next one definitely is noir tinged, uh, very dark, so dark that I'm kind of surprised anyone's letting me write it, but I'm excited (laughs) about it. (laughs) And, um, also set in Los Angeles and revolves around a murder bus and an unsolved murder 20 years before and kind of the dark underbelly of Hollywood. Mm. Yeah. I've always wanted to go on the esoteric. Yes. Yes. Um, I've never been on any of those tours. I think when I was about to, the pandemic hit mm-hmm. and so it hasn't happened yet, but um, yeah. I have I, gone on many an esoteric tour and they're wonderful. And if you ever want a bus buddy sometime, Barbara, I would love to go on a tour with you. Oh, that would be great fun. It really would. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, I mean, I see they're doing it online and, mm-hmm. and I should, you know, I should pay my 10 bucks and, and watch something. Um, but, you know, I want to be on the bus. I know the bus is a very fun part of it, really. We are at the end of our time. And I wonder if you have any advice for the writers listening. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, writing is can be such like a solitary thing that it was really helpful for me, even well before I was published to just find ways to connect with other writers in my community. And I am so grateful to you for helping facilitate that with this and the panel that we spoke on. Um, 
but I, I think that finding other writers, particularly crime writers or, you know, whatever your genre is and connecting with them on Twitter or in, you know, webinars or different spaces, going to readings to support them. I mean, all of that comes back to you. I think um, along your journey, it makes you think of different things you want to be doing in your own work and different connections you might not have forged. And there's so much of the publishing and writing journey that's a little bit out of your control. But I think um, fostering strong ties within your community is something that's very much in your control and will pay massive dividends. Yeah, certainly. Uh, being a, a good literary citizen is exactly should be on your list, right? Yes. Hallie, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Yes, it was great. Thank you. And uh, can't wait for the next book. Thank you so much. I have been with Hallie Sutton. Her book is The Lady Upstairs, published by Putnam. The music is by Travis Barrett. You can find him on Spotify. And all you writers out there, keep the words moving. Um, Let them find their way onto the page. You can fix them later. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Thank you.